0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate
1: Hour on Business Radio,
0: powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam
1: Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour airs at noon Eastern every Friday. As always, you can access our past shows using the SiriusXM on-demand feature. If you have a question during today's discussion, please do give us a call at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also email your questions to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Well, published by the Urban Land Institute and PWC, Emerging Trends in Real Estate is one of the oldest and most highly regarded annual outlook surveys for the real estate and land use industries. Now in its 39th year, it includes interviews and survey responses from hundreds of leading real estate experts, including investors, developers, uh, property company representatives, lenders, brokers, consultants, and even a couple of academics. Uh, Its publication each fall is an anchor of the year's real estate industry calendar. I am delighted on today's special program to welcome the co-chair of the Emerging Trends team, Mitch Rochelle. Mitch is a partner at PwC and currently serves as one of the global firm's business development leaders. He previously was a founder of PwC's real estate advisory practice and has over 30 years of experience serving a wide array of real estate investors, both foreign and domestic. Mitch leads uh, the firm's real estate research efforts and is a widely recognized commentator on real estate, housing, capital markets, the retail industry, and the economy. Uh, Mitch serves as a trustee of the PwC Charitable Foundation, where he leads its grant-making efforts in youth education and financial literacy. Additionally, Mitch is a member of the Board of Directors of Pencil and Green Bronx Machine. Mitch, thanks for coming back to the program.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Sam.
1: So, Emerging Trend is, I would argue, the industry's most widely cited annual touchpoint engaging market sentiment. I know I assign the first couple of sections to, to my own students at the beginning of every semester just to give them that context of where we are in the industry. As background, tell us a little bit about the Emerging Trends Report. What is it? Whose opinions does the report reflect?
0: Uh, Great. So we actually hit a record. We're actually in our 39th year. We haven't figured out what the celebration is going to be uh, next year, but uh, we're in our 39th year. Uh, And this year, we had 1,600 respondents to the survey. And then on top of that, we interviewed over a 1,000 individuals representing uh, almost 600 different organizations. And on top of that, we held 52 local market focus groups. So It's a plethora of information, and if that wasn't enough, we collect data on each of the 78 local markets that are part of the survey just to sort of fact-check what sentiment we're hearing from the market participants because the thing we always worry about is somebody in a specific market putting their finger on the scale, which doesn't happen when you have 1,600 people responding to a survey. So it, uh, I'm flattered that uh, you're assigning it to your students uh, and uh, it it is a, a fun project to be a part of each and every year.
1: And how long have you been involved in
0: the report? Um, probably about 15 years. Uh, a little bit of history, although maybe not relevant, but PwC uh, actually acquired the intellectual property from um, its original uh, authors, and uh, that was probably about 20-plus years ago when I first got uh, tangentially involved. And then we partnered with ULI because we wanted to take the publication globally. So in addition to the Americas issue that's coming out uh, – or it came out, rather, this week, um, we also further uh, do one in Europe and one in Asia – and we couldn't have really reached that wide of an audience if we didn't uh, partner with ULI. So the partnership with ULI is probably now uh, over long, well over a decade. And okay. the great part about that is uh, that's how we get the, um, the array of and depth and breadth of market participants to be a part of the survey because we tap into the 30,000-plus members of ULI.
1: So two more background questions on this first, just to give folks a sense of how substantial this undertaking is. Uh, how many folks do you have actually working on the team, PWC, ULI, writers, researchers, interviewers? How large is that cohort that works on this report?
0: I'd probably say it, it, without numbers, never never enough uh, to conduct <laughs> over a thousand uh, interviews. It takes more than a village. It takes a small city. And uh, we have dozens and dozens of folks. So uh, there's folks from PwC, there's folks from ULI, and uh, it gets done at a national level, it gets done at the local level. And then, just order of timing, uh, a lot of that research takes place in the July August timeframe. And then we use late August into early September to aggregate all of the data, um, sort of reconcile the insights amongst the different folks and uh, then start the process of writing 100-plus pages of report. So, uh, like I said, it certainly takes a village.
1: And I'm really thrilled that you're here with me today because the new report was just released yesterday. Uh, For folks who want to find that, uh, where is it that they should look?
0: Uh, pwc.com forward slash uh, E-T-R-E is the URL to find it. I'm sorry, it's pwc.com slash U-S etre And that's the best way. And then and if you go to that landing page, you'll find not only a big bar that lets you download the report, but you'll also find for the 10 top markets in the survey, and I'm sure we'll unpack that soon enough, um, some data on those markets um, to bring a little color as to why one market's number one versus number two. So uh, it's robust. Uh, it's interactive. And if you just want to read the report, you press a button and you can find it in your phone moments
1: later. So I have been reading the report, and I see that smaller and secondary is one of the absolutely key findings of this year's report. Uh, You describe it in terms of smaller, younger, and highly educated. This is really fascinating for me because for so much of this expansion, the focus has been on the largest markets, right from the beginnings of the recovery to Issues and questions around where foreign investors were deploying their capital and buying assets. It's been about New York, Washington, San Francisco. Uh, But that's not uh, the focus in this report. In fact, you know, one of the highest profile markets in the country falls substantially in the rankings. Talk to me about smaller and secondary.
0: What's really interesting, Sam, is if you go back, uh, let's say, a decade, which was the last time Seattle was the number one market, and maybe I should have said spoiler alert because you'll ask me what's number one. Um, What we did was we looked at the cumulative population of the top 10 cities in the market, and it was around 55,000 people was the aggregate population of all of those cities. Um, it fell a little bit a couple of years later and then peaked uh at about um sixty uh just under sixty thousand people um, and That was back in two thousand and twelve when washington d c was at the top of the rankings for many years uh, and then it just started to fall precipitously um if you were uh skiing down the slope that is that curve, it would probably be an intermediate plus uh you know terrain. Uh, but right now, uh, with Seattle on top, we're sort of at the lowest level in terms of the cumulative population of those cities, just over 35,000. So if you think about it, we've fallen almost by half in terms of the aggregate size of the cities that are in the top 10 rankings. And what investors are saying, to your point, loud and clear is coming out of the recession, maybe bigger was better, maybe bigger was viewed as being more liquid as as Capital is beginning to rotate back into real estate, but later in the cycle, as the markets are way more mature, the opportunities in terms of outsized returns really, really can't be found in those big cities. They can really only be found in um, those secondary cities. And that's why the capital's chasing those cities.
1: Right. And you're another spoiler alert, uh, what you're not going to see in this top 10 list is New York or San Francisco or yeah. Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, but tell me, so we've got these top 10 markets. Seattle's right at the top of the list. We'll take a look at some of the others. What's your criteria here for this top 10? Is it that they're attractive from an investment perspective, a lending perspective, fundamentals, growth and gains, um, opportunities to develop, uh, all of those things? What makes these top 10 markets?
0: What's interesting is we we actually answer the question in terms of why after we ask the question of who. So for the 1,600 people who responded to the survey, we literally make them rank the markets from 1 to 78, and they are ranked across – three different criteria. Uh, One is investment and the other is development. The third, incidentally, is home building. But for the top 10 rankings, what we do is we just aggregate the score um, from, from the investment and the development category. And the question is very simple. What are the prospects for the market for the upcoming year on a scale of one to five, where one is abysmal And five is excellent and everybody gives it their respective score we tabulate all those results and the cities just get ranked mathematically based upon the sentiment I'll say that there's an element to it that's clearly popularity contest um, because people just sort of feel good about something without necessarily having the data so as I mentioned earlier one of the things we do to sort of make sense of all of it is we go and look at the data and we figure out that there's actually a correlation between key demographic or economic um, or housing data elements that are existing in that city and where a city ends up getting ranked uh, in the 1 to 78 ranking.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio powered by Wharton. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is PWC's Mitch Rochelle. We're talking about the just-released 39th Annual Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Uh, So we've got these 10 markets. Here's a question for you. I mean, we've been in this fascinating time in the last couple of weeks as Amazon is essentially put out for auction. You know, who wants to be sort of the the, the city that will host our our second headquarters and uh, cities all over the country? have been scrambling to make the case that they are absolutely the best choice. will put together just the right package with the right incentives to attract Amazon. Um, if a city like Philadelphia was to suddenly get that award, uh, next year, are they going to appear in this list purely by virtue of a firm with such high visibility and so much power, uh, you know, making the choice to locate there?
0: It's a great question. And I guess there's a bunch of different ways to answer it. So look at where their HQ1 is and look at what city is top of the list. So maybe that's part of the answer. But maybe the better way to answer the question is what are the attributes that any company that wants to relocate on scale uh, is looking for in order to you know, make the, someplace their home? And uh, maybe one corporate relocation is getting more pressed than others, but it's virtually happening every day of the week. It has a lot to do with the youthfulness of the workforce, the skills that the workforce has, the affordability of doing business there, the affordability of living, meaning you can attract more workers to the market. Um, depending on what the business is, what the infrastructure looks like from a Um, transportation perspective, from a logistical perspective, all of those are going to be in the calculus that any company uses to determine whether or not a specific market is desirable. So that's the background. If that company landed in that place, I would say two things. One is certainly it would be a boom to the market economically and probably get it to Jump up in the rankings from a data perspective, although we may not see that for a while. The popularity contest thing—it's certainly a validation of the market. That's most likely going to get a city to pop up in the rankings. But most importantly, the economic, demographic, um, housing—keep you know looking at all the layers of the onion if you unpeel it—elements that made that market attractive to that employer. Is probably the things that had that market moving up in the rankings uh, by all by itself.
1: All right, so yeah. we took a look at these top four. We've got Seattle, as you've mentioned, Austin, Texas, Salt Lake City, Raleigh-Durham. Um, the, is the common thread here going to be the things you've described? A, a well-educated, relatively young, high-skilled workforce, high quality of life, good infrastructure. Are, are those all of the elements to the recipe that tie these together?
0: Yeah, and affordability of doing business and, and affordability of living. Um, so Seattle's a little... Uh, Challenge there because it has spiked up in price uh, in terms of cost of doing business and cost of living relative to past years. Um, But the reality is the strength of the workforce there is really what makes it compelling from a real estate investment perspective. Salt Lake City, which you mentioned, which is number three, it's the first time it's been in the top 10. It's also the smallest city ever to be in the top 10 rankings with uh, one and a quarter. uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 1.22 million um, uh, people. What's interesting about Salt Lake City, Sam, just to the point, high concentration of young people, well-educated people, good infrastructure, and good um, quality of life. What's also interesting is, and we see this with Fort Lauderdale, that's also in the top ten for the first time, it's an alternative to the other place. So Miami's been in and out of the top ten. Fort Lauderdale is viewed as a more affordable alternative to Miami, and I think what's happening in Salt Lake is it's being viewed as a more affordable alternative to Denver, which is now no longer in the top ten. Uh, so uh, I'm sure ski enthusiasts will um, will comment on Twitter after they hear me say it because they think that the skiing in the Wasatch is different than skiing in, in the Rockies. But the fact of the matter is um, to having that um, opportunity – that proximate to a city is desirable for, for a lot of folks, and people are choosing to live in Salt Lake City, and once the kids are there, um, companies chase them. So it's really all part of a virtuous cycle that starts with young people that have the right skills for the jobs of the future.
1: Well, I absolutely get what you're saying about Salt Lake. I'm there at least a few times a year. My favorite place to go skiing, in part because it doesn't have snowboarders, is just right next door to, to Salt Lake. But in terms of you know, the quality of the infrastructure, being able to get in and out, um, you know, the quality of living, you know, the affordability of the place, uh, the, the high skill level uh, and language capacity captured in, in the local workforce, uh, really uh, so, so a very strong set of attributes there. I'm glad you spoke to the issue around, you know, Not Miami, but Fort Lauderdale right next door. Because my next question was going to be Fort Lauderdale, why is that there? It wouldn't have occurred to me immediately. I've got, you know, I hear lots of positive buzz around Nashville, uh, but for Fort Lauderdale, is it really that uh, it's, uh, you know, capturing some of the benefits of being very close to Miami?
0: Yeah, I think in part, um, it's also, what's interesting, first of all, I had to shake off images of spring break 35 years ago. Yes, I'm that old of Fort Lauderdale, (laughs) because that's where we went in those days. Um, And we drove down there to boot, but not to carbon date myself. But um, Fort Lauderdale is larger, um, and the Fort Lauderdale that we're referring to is really all of Broward County. So it's just under 2 million people. But what's interesting is, you think of Fort Lauderdale, and many do, especially the East Coast of Florida, as being where old people are. But the fact of the matter is, the net migration in is relatively young, and uh, it's it's getting younger uh, day by day. And uh, there's a different uh, quality of life in Fort Lauderdale versus Miami. It's also part of the suburbanication, made a new word up there, of um, of cities. And uh, when young families start thinking about, um, you know, starting a family, you know, maybe buying that first home or maybe renting their first home before they buy and they see Miami's being, you know, too pricey for them. Uh, they decide to move, you know, north a little bit on 95 um, and then decide whether or not they want to deal with the traffic. What's interesting, having been down there in the last couple of weeks, the traffic between Fort Lauderdale and Miami, depending on the time of day, can be fairly brutal. What companies are finding is since the workers have moved there, they're actually relocating some of their um, operations, whether they be office using jobs or not to Broward County because the people don't want the commute, and that's what sort of leads to the virtuous cycle there. So um, Fort Lauderdale was probably more surprising than Salt Lake City in terms of being in the top ten. The question really is, you know, a year from now, two years from now, is it still in the top ten? Because when Austin broke in uh, more than a decade ago, we didn't know how durable that would be, and Austin stayed every year since it started in the top ten.
1: Right. Well I mean this is really important for me because this does sound to some degree like a departure from that dominant narrative of this cycle that the largest Urban areas in their cores offering the richest set of amenities have the sort of insurmountable advantage that when you looked at what it is that, you know, relatively young people want, um, you know, the walkability, the access to those amenities, um, you know, those biggest markets, the the 24-7 cities uh, really just were the best positioned. But this is a little different.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting is when you talk to real estate investors like you and I do every day of the week, um, when they're making purchase decisions, they're always evaluating purchasing whatever that piece of income-producing property is relative to its reproduction cost. And when they're building from the ground up, obviously they're building at, by definition, reproduction cost. And when they look at the economics of that, they say, wow, these 24-hour cities, while they have a lot going for them – the math just doesn't work in some respects from a return perspective on a risk-adjusted basis. So what real estate investors have been doing, um, and it's it's more than just a trend that's emerging, is a, I would say maybe the report should be titled "Sustainable Trends in Real Estate" for the time being, because it just keeps happening more and more that investors are looking to um, those smaller cities. I get this a lot when I'm on the road presenting the report in some of these very cities. They say to me, I really wish you wouldn't have made it to Top City because it's now no longer the best-kept secret. And (laughs) uh, um, I remember – and we haven't talked about property types yet, but I was talking to a very large owner-operator of industrial, and industrial has remained a very hot sub-asset class in real estate, and he said – Mitch can you please stop reporting about it because now everybody wants to buy the stuff and I said all right well um, the good news is you heard it here first Um, and uh, I think that that's really part of the story here Sam which is the trend towards these smaller cities in terms of where real estate capital wants to find itself where real estate capital is willing to take development risk that's a you heard it here first in emerging trends in real estate
1: if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is PwC's Mitch Rochelle. We're talking about the just-released 39th Annual Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. So, Mitch, here's a really tough question. I guess this is the one that you and I probably struggle with the most. You know, if, if I'm the mayor or the head of an economic development corporation in a city, I'm looking at this list, I hear you talking about sort of all of these attributes that add up to success – I don't have the youngest, best, skilled population. I don't have the highest quality of living. I don't have the, you know, most um, you know, well-functioning and efficient infrastructure. Um, I don't have the firms to necessarily sort of attract those folks, or vice versa. Uh, where do I start if I don't already have all these ingredients?
0: What's interesting is, and I'm not suggesting that any of these two cities don't ha- didn't previously have those ingredients, but I'll use them as sort of case studies. Uh, San Antonio, Texas, and Tampa, Florida, um, both of those cities um, had went out um, with some public funding and maybe some private funding and did something to revitalize a portion of the city that maybe had been ignored and turned what could have been viewed as a liability into an asset. Both of them rebuilt waterfronts and created riverwalks. Um, Los Angeles, which is in the top 10. Los Angeles Uh, took downtown, which was urban blight at its best, and relocated, didn't relocate, actually created in a public-private partnership model, um, a real hub of entertainment, living, commerce uh, with the LA Live site. In fact, uh, that's where we are right now for the launch of um, Emerging Trends, which happened yesterday as part of ULI's annual fall meeting, which took place at the convention center, which is adjacent to LA Live. Uh, The convention center had been there, but tying all of those elements in, creating um, just sort of commerce around an area that had been sort of somewhat ignored, um, that's a trend that we're seeing more and more. So it really takes a lot of vision on the part of uh, government. It takes private capital that wants to go along for the ride in some sort of meaningful way. To make an investment that probably will not be realized during the term of the elected officials who had the vision to execute that. Okay, and um, you know that's the challenge when the sort of the political um, estate, if you will, does business with um, with. You know, the private sector, because the, the time horizon for measuring return and measuring success may not line up. But the fact of the matter is when you do have folks that are that visionary, um, that's what takes a city that may not be thriving economically and turns it around. It's just the reality is it could take a decade. Um, and, you know, very few uh, oftentimes politicians don't have that uh, much time to measure success.
1: But when we're looking at some of these projects like LA Live that you know, f- over the long term end up really being transformative uh, to uh, the neighborhoods, uh, they can also change the community. One of the things that you know, I'm focused on here with some of my colleagues is the impact that great success has on um, Accessibility, affordability, uh, economic and occupational diversity in the neighborhood. Uh, f- from your vantage point, how important is it that when we're undertaking large-scale transformative projects that we include in that some kind of planning to ensure that uh, you still have you know that socioeconomic, occupational, whatever you want to describe it as, uh, you know, th- that diversity, that you know, people with different backgrounds, different experiences that are serving the community in different ways are still able to reside in that neighborhood.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Um, And what often happens is they become very hot, they become very unaffordable, and new development comes in and sort of forces out the the very people that may have sort of wanted to be there in the first place because we're now building new condominium product at $1,500 a square foot, and that, you know, freezes out, um, you know, some element of the population. The interesting thing, and what I would focus on a little bit is what are the – types of companies that they're looking to ultimately attract in that you know, planning process and what skills are those companies going to need and how do we attract those skills. So sometimes the public-private partnership requires a, a third P, which is philanthropy, and there are land trusts that have dedicated land to some of these types of endeavors. Sometimes it requires teaming up with higher education so that there's a pipeline of talent. You look at Nashville, you look at the success of Austin, you even look at uh, Columbus, Ohio. There are some cities that have done really, really well in terms of their transformation, as reflected not only in our survey but by other measures, that the university played a role in the supplying of talent to that fuel that growth. So I, I think you really the, the depth and breadth of that vision has to truly be far and wide. So you make sure you take into account once we attract companies, will we have the right talent um, for what those companies are looking for? Because if the talent isn't there, the companies aren't
1: going to go there. One more question before we move to a break. You know, based in New York City, like every other New Yorker, I've got this bias. There's no way that there's a top 10 list that doesn't include New York. Uh, But here I'm looking at emerging trends in real estate, and Manhattan takes the biggest tumble this year. It's ranked number 46 on the list. What's going wrong in New York that may be instructive for other cities around the country?
0: I think at the end of the day, when you look at the diversity of who responds in the 1,600 folks who responded to the survey, New York is just out of reach for them financially. So when they're asked how to score on a scale of one to five, the investment prospects of a market that they don't have the wallet to participate in, it just finds its way moving down the list. Um, I would not, if if we limited this survey to... Um, investors who had the dry powder to play in New York, New York may fare differently. But the depth and breadth, again, of who is participating in our survey and how they feel about New York from a, uh, it being out-of-reach perspective, that's what causes um, uh, a city like New York to fall. Um, it may also contribute to why Washington, D.C. has fallen. And in the near term, it certainly contributed to why San Francisco has fallen, and yet San Jose has moved up.
1: Sure. And I can certainly see from the perspective of someone who might be coming from outside New York City, how pricing in our town seems absolutely absurd, uh, let alone sort of the issues around, you know, scale. Um, you can't come into the market unless you already have sort of an institutional level of capital, which uh, makes it a bit of a challenge. And as you described, is going to leave a lot of those potential, res- a lot of those respondents to the survey, you know, out in the cold. It's just not a market they can access. It's not a
0: market they can play in. But if you if you were to expand this globally, and there are many of the sixteen hundred who are from outside the United States, and you ask the question a different way. What's the most resilient market for our dollars over time in good times and bad? New York would probably find itself in the top 10, maybe even the top five. Okay, but um, that's not the way the question is asked and nor has the question ever been asked that way. So for the purpose of consistency over these 39 years, we keep asking the question the same way.
1: So when we come back, I'm actually going to ask you about that from the perspective of the secondary markets that are in the list, that you know, if New York, on one hand, is perceived as the most resilient over the course of the cycle, are there any special considerations that we need to keep in mind as relates to how markets perform over the course of the cycle when we're looking at an Austin or when we're looking at Nashville? Asheville? Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with PwC's Mitch Rochelle on the findings of the 39th Annual Emerging Trends in Real Estate. Report. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the
0: Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon.
1: Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is PwC's Mitch Rochelle. We are talking about the just-released 39th Annual Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Mitch, before we went to break, we were talking about how if the question in the report were a little bit different, you know, which cities might be the most resilient over the course of the real estate cycle, that in, in that case, New York might sort of you know, hold its own at the top of the list or near the top of the list. But that's not the question that's being asked. It does raise the question, however, when we do have Nashville, when we have Salt Lake City, when we have Raleigh-Durham you know, in this top 10 list, are there special considerations that investors might need to keep in mind when they're looking at you know what we would refer to in real estate as you know the secondary market
0: yeah what i would do is go pull a report from you know pick your source of the top 10 and top 20 employers in the market and then try to figure out if there's a theme in terms of those employers in term from a industry concentration perspective what i'm amazed at in dallas um two years ago was the top market uh, last year it was number two this year it fell to number five I, i i don't get overly worried when markets move around like that you know from one to five but when you looked at i remember looking at it two years ago when dallas was number one and what was fascinating was the economic diversity of dallas in terms of the different industries in which um the employers were coming from. If you look at it by comparison to Houston, Houston's largest one or two employers actually were may not, may not have been oil and gas, but if then you looked at the concentration across the top 20 employers, clearly there was an abundance of oil and gas industries. And look what's happened to Houston as oil fell. Let's leave Hurricane Harvey aside because that is a natural disaster um, of epic proportion, but isn't why Houston had fallen in our rankings. Um so the 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 reality is the secret sauce being economic diversity when you look at Seattle which is number 1 and I'm often asked the question because it's viewed as being a tech market fact of the matter the largest employers in that market aren't necessarily tech um um aerospace is the number one uh job um engine in uh in Seattle Retail plays a role with two big retailers based there, three, actually, if you think about it, in the top 10. So there's, that's really what's important, and that's what drives resilience. The thing about New York that people don't often understand is they think about its concentration in financial services, and while that is a large part of the employment base in New York, entertainment and media really creates almost as many
1: jobs in New York as does uh,
0: financial services, and that, that's, to me, I think, the answer to your question.
1: Right. And I think over the course of this cycle, certainly tech has been sort of a driver of, you know, high, perhaps not the largest number of jobs, but you know, some of the very visible job growth uh, in New York City. And I think the city's been trying to capitalize on that, you know, and as you described, trying to ensure the supply of talented workers through some of the investments that they've made strategically in, you know, the Cornell Technion campus and NYU's campus uh, uh, for the sciences in Brooklyn. Um and we'll see sort of how that plays out over the course of the next uh, over the course of the next cycle I imagine. But this question of your resilience across the cycle really brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, for some time now, the question of our location in the cycle has been top of mind for a lot of people in real estate. As compared to historic norms, certainly the economic cycle is running long, as is the real estate cycle. I can see a chart right here in the Emerging Trends Report, you know, that captures how close we are to that 120 months, uh, which really is the the longest economic expansion uh, that we've had uh, in modern economic history in the United States. In the 39th survey, what's the feeling amongst real estate investors about where we are?
0: Um, one of our survey respondents answered the question this way, and I'm just going to quote verbatim, I hate what ending uh, we are in as a question. It makes it seem like cycles have an end after a preset time has elapsed. So um, perhaps there's no end, a uh, no visible end in sight to where we are in a cycle. But what's really interesting in, in the chart you're referencing, which is in the report, which people uh, can download, really compares The length of, or the duration of many of the cycles going back, uh, I think, as early as uh, the 1975 to 1980 expansion, which was 59 months. But what it does is it compares how much uh, annual real GDP was grown in that recovery and how big the labor force grew during that time period. And what may be interesting, surprising, or not, is for the recovery that we're in, which is 100 months in counting from 2009 to today. Um, we've grown the least in terms of annual GDP, and we've grown the least comparatively in terms of annual employment growth. So that slow growth may just, in fact, be the continued fuel that's going to take this thing forward because we haven't overheated. The other thing worth noting. Is it's also probably the lowest rate environment uh, of any of those um, recoveries, and one of the folks I interviewed for the survey referred to it as the two by two, which is the two percent on the, the two handle on the ten year Treasury and the two handle on GDP growth, and and this individual felt like that was something that was actually uh, driving. Um, The recovery forward as opposed to stalling it, which seems counterintuitive. I know when I say things like that, somebody on social media will call me an idiot because I say, how can 2% GDP be a good thing? But it's the fact that it's prevented anything from overheating, which is what often happens in the late stages of economic recoveries.
1: Yeah, not putting my macroeconomist hat on for a second. Certainly, you know, uh, I think you know, folks want to keep in mind that although we've been in expansion mode for a fairly long time, um, and the longest we've ever seen in that modern history is 120 months, 10 years. uh, Expansions themselves don't die of old age. Um, There is not a finite and fixed maximum life on an economic expansion. Uh, It's more likely that circumstances begin to arise. They may relate to risk-taking behaviors in the market uh, that ultimately can be the triggers for or the precipitators of an inflection. But, you know, absolutely to your point, I I hate the question too, in part because I'm never going to get the timing right um, of where we are in that cycle. Another thing I want to ask you about before we dig in on some of the property types and, you know, Gen Z effects. uh, In the press release, it mentions that this year's survey was conducted before Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. In as much as that is specifically mentioned here, is it your expectation or view that, um, you know, the, the, the damage that was done um, is of a scale that it actually might change the fortunes of some of these markets?
0: I think so. And that seemed very uh, adamant. Huh? I think so. We, we, we try to look at um, what happened in, a, in emerging trends way back when when uh, the benefit of 39 years is you can go back. What happened in Miami with Andrew? Um, we also looked at uh, what happened um, with New Orleans and Katrina, and um, we re- there wasn't really enough data uh, in terms of the survey and the rankings and other things that were happening in the economy that could have influenced those outcomes to really draw any kind of conclusion. So, on the one hand, obviously those economies are you know somewhat near-term devastated, Houston in particular. Um, Puerto Rico is not part of the survey, so I'll, I'll leave that out for, for now. Um, but the other thing is, if the rebuilding effort is in the order of $100 billion or more, the, just the rebuilding process is going to be catalytic to the local economy in terms of job creation. Um, we saw that uh, in the rebuilding of uh, Louisiana uh, post-Katrina, that there was a tremendous influx of migratory talent that was there just for purposes of a uh, multi-year rebuilding. Also, when there was cleanup efforts in the Gulf after an oil spill, there was a little bit of a boom to the economy there because there were jobs that were created. So um, obviously, you're going to have to look at it over time and how resilient truly is the economy in Houston and its um, sort of uh, alignment with the oil and gas industry. But in the near term, as Money starts to flow into the market as part of the rebuilding efforts. That's going to create a um, you know side by side benefit with whatever economic expansion may have been stalled uh, as a result of the uh, both the lost jobs from the the hurricane fallout itself. So net net, it's probably a positive, and that's the sentiment that we got. But we did the survey before the um, the hurricanes. We went back and spoke to some folks just to get a little bit of a sense, just so we could be responsive to that question when it came up. And the the overall feeling coming from the market is quite positive that uh, they will rebuild and their economy will benefit not only from the rebuilding, but over the long term.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. My guest is PwC's Mitch Rochelle, and we are talking about the just-released 39th Annual Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report, which you can find at PwC's website. Uh, we were just discussing, Mitch, uh, you know the potential impact whether there will be a long-term impact from the hurricanes on the you know performance and outlook for for the cities that were impacted I'm looking at you know one of the really interesting tables in the report the importance of issues for real estate in 2018 and risks from extreme weather really is not showing up as a headline issue for folks that are responding to the survey do we see that uh, given the uncertainties um, and the you know, ongoing debate around the meaning, extent, uh, you know, risks associated with climate change, are there investors that are saying, you know what, maybe there are some parts of the country that uh, are just at greater risk than others. Um, and so uh, I want to change how I think about you know, long-term balancing my portfolio. Is anyone shying away from you know, the Gulf Coast, from Florida? Have, have any of those behaviors adjusted?
0: Now, what's interesting in my observation, my macro observation, is if there's an industry that is chock full of people that are half full, it's real estate people. Um, and you and I have been to you know enough conferences between us. Other than the wake of the financial crisis, I never remember a vibe at a real estate conference being anything but incredibly upbeat, um, because <laughs> real estate people, by definition, are, are, are positive people and promoters. Um, so we haven't picked up that vibe yet. There is a little subculture brewing of people in real estate who are opportunists, who think that there will be a fallout in some of these markets, and there'll be a little bit of a sea change as people try to shift capital away and they want to move in. Um, and if you wanted to put numbers to that sentiment, one of the things we do ask is we ask market participants macro about real estate and what are the prospects of profit for profitability for the industry for the upcoming year. And one of the things that we've seen is we've been plus 80 percent in terms of positive sentiment. Again, just like uh, the city rankings, it's a one to five scale where one's abysmal and five is excellent. But that good to excellent group is still 80 percent of all the people responding to that question. So I think that real estate folks just always look at things as being half full and not half empty. And they're not necessarily running away from some of those markets um, en masse. There are going to be subgroups that sort of leave, but the belief is that new ones will move right in.
1: So I'm not going to ask you that terrible question about where we are in the cycle and gosh, you know, what inning we're in, but I, I am going to ask you, uh, you know, something else that, you know, will get me to where I want to go with this. You do in the report track sentiment around the extent to which this is a buyer's market, a seller's market. um uh, and it looks like uh it 's a bit more of a seller 's market today, or sentiment around selling is stronger uh than than it is for buying. How do I interpret that
0: yeah you know what it 's funny. We put it in a report every year because there's a lot of folks who like it, and when I look at that data over time, it never it doesn 't necessarily over time tell me anything about the sentiment in terms of buying and selling because I think what happens with that question, Sam people end up ask, answering it from their own vantage point about something that's going on, and it tends to skew the, the results. So um, the thing I would focus on, though, uh, as I hopefully artfully pivot to uh, another answer here, is when I talked about that positive sentiment um, being you know, fairly consistent over these last several years, one of the things we did was look at the people who said that they felt in 2018 that the prospects for profitability in the, of the industry are good versus those who said that it was excellent. And while the good and excellent category is staying pretty strong, there has been a shift from the people who said good to the people, I mean, to the people who said excellent to the people who said good. And so overall, they're still bullish, but they're starting to temper a little bit. Their enthusiasm. Um, so I said they're, they're still half full, they're not half empty, but they're looking at the glass, you know, a little bit differently. Maybe they're putting their reading glasses on to get a little closer read on whether or not the glass is half full or half empty. So that tells me a little bit more, because over the last couple of years, the number of people saying things were excellent has shifted downwards a little bit uh, at the expense of people who are saying that uh, things are good. So... um I'll, I'll keep a closer eye on that metric as opposed to the buy-hold-sell metric.
1: Understood. You know, one of the ways in which the world has obviously, you know, changed radically over the course of the last year since the last survey is uh, you know, in the US political landscape. You now, I see that, um, you know, as an issue for impacting real estate, uh, the political landscape doesn't feature prominently uh, in the current survey. But what about some of the specific issues that are coming up around, you know, uh, uh, you know tax reform around, you know, immigration? Um, you know, are there Are there elements of the policy uh, initiatives that we're seeing that are more or less important or a source of concern for real estate investors?
0: You know, I went back and listened to uh, my interview with you last year after the release of uh, the Emerging Trends Report, which uh, last year was released around the same time, but I don't think you and I could get our schedules lined up. So we actually did our interview uh, the Friday after the election. Wow! And your first four questions were about uh, (laughs) what had happened with the election, and so I listened to what I had to say, which I it was the greatest display of hedging uh, (laughs) any of your guests had ever had ever uh, exercised. Um, What's interesting is we do this in the face-to-face interviews more than we do it in the survey because you have to be able to have it be a conversation as opposed to binary yes or no or one to five kind of questions. But we talk about politics. Um, When you get past the individual political bias of whomever you're talking about and their need to sort of get their agenda forward and you talk to them, they actually, here's the thing that real estate folks care about. They care about economic expansion. They care about um, access to capital. They they care about uh, well-functioning, efficient capital markets. Um, They don't like regulation. Um, They like favorable tax policy. Um, So whether they're in a blue state or a red state, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, doesn't matter. Um, Those are the things that are important. So if the White House and, and Congress sort of, collectively can move forward with an agenda as advertised, um, the real estate community is going to respond favorably to it if, in fact, the economy expands as a result of it, because that's what you need. The fact of the matter is, while location the important virtue for success in real estate, and we've all been taught that um, you know, throughout our lives, job creation and economic expansion are really the fuel that makes real estate work. And whatever policies come out of uh, Washington, if, if they're catalytic to continued economic expansion or even speed up economic expansion, the real estate uh, world is going to jump on board. As it relates to the immigration issues and some of the other uh, non-fiscal policies that are being debated, um, I would say, that real estate folks tend to not necessarily weigh in on those things, um, other than something that could have an impact on the labor force, because they de- they definitely care about the labor force.
1: Sure. Maybe we wear a different hat when we're thinking about real estate than we when we do when we're thinking about a whole slew of, of other issues that uh... I'm
0: not good on my color wheel, and I forget <laughs> what happens when you merge blue and red. But I would say, by and large, maybe it's green. Is that what mm-hmm. happens when you merge blue and red? Um, but um, that's the color that real estate people think about. They think about green uh, they don't necessarily think in terms of blue and red when they're um, um, when they're Thinking about their
1: business. Sure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is PwC's Mitch Rochelle. We're talking about the just released 39th Annual Emerging Trends in Real Estate report. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, you know, a lot of the conversation, particularly in multifamily, about, you know, who's, you know, what's driving the demand curve or what's pushing the demand curve out, you know, the conversation has been about millennials. but in this report, you also talk about the Gen Z effect. And uh, let me know uh, if this is another term that uh, that you've created here, gadgeteria. Uh, what is Gen Z about and what is gadgeteria?
0: Yeah, well, we were going to go with uh, the most important cohort for real estate moving forward, which is the 15 to 34-year-olds, which we were going to call those millennials, and then we ended up debating amongst ourselves whether or not "millennial" was a term we wanted to coin. We, we pride ourselves as authoring emerging trends that we coined the term "18-hour city." We were looking for a new one, and that's where "gadgeteria" came from. Uh, but what's interesting is, so the Gen Z uh, population of, um, you know, I'm gonna scramble to come up with the the number of folks, which you know, is the the group that's coming of age, you know, which is, you know, maybe 65 million or so. If you think about them, they grew up, and I have 17-year-old twins. uh, They're in that cohort. They grew up with digital technology as part of their life from day one. If you think about the baby boomers, you know, the advancements in technology that took place in their life, the photocopy, the fax machine, the beeper, and for video gaming, it was Pong, okay? Um, You're really
1: dating yourself, Mitch. (laughs) I am,
0: but if you move forward to today, think about Gen Z, virtual reality, augmented reality, wearable technology, chatbots. These are all the things that have been part of their life as, as long as they can remember. And um, from a retailing perspective, they've been – their first exposure to retail, other than being dragged to a store by their parents, when they made an autonomous decision to purchase something, they did it digitally. Um, So they're accustomed to having gadgets as part of their everyday life, whereas no other generation sort of grew up with them Um, being there. They they happened throughout their life. So – We're hearing from market participants that the way that Gen Z will retail, the way they will work, will be much different than prior generations because they're totally digital, whereas previous generations sort of became digital over their life.
1: Sure. Digital natives versus sort of in your in my case, we can remember life before the Internet, uh, which, uh, again, sort of places us back a little bit. We have just two minutes left Uh, on that subject of retail. It's gotten a really bad rap. It's a sort of a tougher rap over the last year. Uh, What are the prospects?
0: What's interesting is there's two problems there, or there's two World, there's retail as in the box that real estate people own, and then there's retailing, which is taking place inside the box. Um, the re- the owners, the landlords, are going to respond to whatever happens in good or bad in the retailing industry, but they're not quite sure what's going to happen there because you've got a merchandising challenge, you've got a distribution challenge, you've got a coexisting with uh, digital. Um, disruptors challenge all of that things that are happening inside the box and that change real estate people can only respond to that change Um, they can enable some of it as best they can but they're not running the business that takes place inside that box And that's where they're sort of handicapped. So real estate people will try to lead where they can, but I think they're stuck following.
1: So we have less than a minute left on the question of retail. I hear every retail CEO talking about experiential. How much experiential do we really need? Can it absorb the space that's going to become available?
0: Uh, The consensus is um, perhaps not, which is because experience doesn't necessarily yield profits inside the box. And maybe I'll go back to the fact that I'm the the one accountant on the phone call, not the economist, but record keeping is going to be the challenge because if experience gives rise to a sale that takes place on a mobile device, somehow we're going to have to figure out how to attribute that sale to the experience so that we can do the right record keeping to justify all of those experience locations. It sort of you know, it throws me back to the days when companies would have a, a, an ad in the phone book, you know, and you couldn't figure out if that ad was driving revenue or not, but you knew you had to have it because that's how people found you. Yep. Experience may be the thing that people need to find the product that they may ultimately purchase someplace else.
1: Mitch, thank you so much for coming back to the program. It's been really thrilling talking to you just on the edge of the report having been released yesterday.
0: Sam, I'm honored to be one of the first outlets that that we got to talk to the report about. So thanks for having me on.
1: That was PWC's Mitch Rochelle, and we were talking about the just released 39th Annual Emerging Trends in Real Estate report, which you can find at the PWC website. Our show will be repeated through the week. You can read more about the Real Estate Hour and our other shows and hosts on the SiriusXM XM website at SiriusXM.com slash businessradio. The Real Estate Hour is produced by Patty Hall, who's also program director here. She's joined by Danielle Bruno on the Soundbird board, and once again I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks for listening.